You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Keeping Revenue Rolling and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Chargebee. Okay, welcome everyone to the webinar. Um, I just want to start off by thanking everyone for taking the time out of their day to join us. I know, uh, um, you know, things can get really busy, so I appreciate you uh, being here with us today. Uh, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing lead here at Chargebacks 911. Um, and just for those of you unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, um, we help merchants by identifying and preventing chargebacks before they happen, and then we help merchants refute illegitimate chargebacks once they do happen. Um, also presenting today, I'm excited to have uh, Mallory Walsh, who's the uh, Director of Marketing over at Chargebee. Um, Mallory, do you want to take just a moment and tell us a little bit about what Chargebee does? Uh, yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me today. Um, so a little overview on Chargebee. So we're a provider of a global subscription management platform. So we deliver fast time to value and exceptional service and support. Our mission is to empower businesses of all sizes and to maximize their growth potential and revenue by adapting quickly and increasing loyalty. Great. Um, and now before I get started, I just wanna go over how the webinar will be structured. Uh, the first part of the webinar will include a uh, presentation, a fairly short presentation from myself and then um, a presentation from Mallory. Um, this portion of the webinar will be fairly visual, so um, it's important that if you, if you, if you can, uh, you close other windows and give us your attention. The second portion of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. Um, this portion, of course, will be a little bit less visual, so if you want, um, you can just kind of listen to that part. Um, please feel free. Uh, we encourage you to submit any questions that you have during the webinar. Um, we promise to answer uh, any questions submitted, even if we're not able to get to them live. Um, we promise to get to them after the webinar. Um, since many people ask, this webinar will be available for replay starting tomorrow. Not all the Q&A portion will necessarily be included in that recording, however, so we encourage you to kind of stay with us today to get the maximum value out of this event. Uh, lastly, this and other webinars will eventually be released in audio form on our podcast. Just research, uh, just search for uh, Charge Forward, all one word, with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts, and uh, you'll be able to, uh, to listen to some past webinars. And eventually, this one will also be published there as well. Okay, so I'm not sure how many people have been on webinars that I've hosted before, but I like to start the webinar by asking a dumb question. Um, in my mind, it's a privilege to get to talk to different industry experts, and um, I know inside myself that sometimes I try to, you know, something will happen, I won't quite understand it, and I'll, I'll be a little bit afraid to ask questions. So I'm trying to better myself, and hopefully I, I ask a question that maybe somebody else um, has in their own mind, And um, but uh, I can't guarantee that because sometimes I have some pretty dumb questions. But uh, Mallory, are you game? Is it okay if I, if I ask you a dumb question to start this off today? Yep, definitely. Okay. Um, okay. So my, my question for you, and I thought about this a little bit, and, and this is going to be a little embarrassing for me to admit, given, given you know, uh, what I do. Um, but it's a little bit, I, I do get a little bit intimidated when I think about the structure of an e-commerce website and all of how all those different pieces fit together. I think I'm pretty solid, right? Like if I could diagram it out, I think I'd probably, you know, know the difference between a website and a shopping cart, uh, CMS, uh, you know, the uh, payment gateway, the processor, the um, ISO, the issuing, you know, the CRM, the uh, um, 
the uh, marketing automation platform. I sort of understand the basic tech stacks, um, but then when you get into things like um, uh, Charge B and how some of these other things fit into that, I get a little bit confused. So, so can can you can you maybe just sort of untangle that for me? I mean, are, are you guys do you consider yourself a CRM or a payment gateway or a, you know like how, how does how does that work? Could could you t tell me how you fit in that architecture? Yeah, yep. So we're the subscription management platform. So basically we sit in between all of your core business systems and kind of provide that crucial layer of business optimization. So between your payment gateways, your marketing, your sales, your finance, um, our platform gives you the necessary levers to operationally like, pull your playbooks, um, drive strategies, and um, make it so your business can thrive and grow and move forward. That's great. And so so I assume that you're connected kind of to all those pieces, right? So so I could I could be in my CRM and I would still have charge B information. How does that work? Do I do I log into a separate system when I when I'm dealing with stuff or on the day to day? What would, would I still be in my my normal systems? Um, yeah, it really depends on what your current tech stack is. We natively plug in and integrate to over 50 different um, platforms and then you can kind of choose how you want to manage that and which system you want to use is kind of your record of choice in your system of operation. Well, that's great. I learned something new every day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start kind of talking about chargebacks, I think for obvious reasons, I'm sure Mallory's going to provide some specific insights that will help uh, merchants that are currently using subscription billing or who are interested in using it. Um, but for my portion, I'm going to talk about chargebacks. Um, and uh, just a sort of disclaimer up front, because I realize that a lot of the uh, the content that I talk about today and in other uh, webinars is stuff that I talk about before. I'm going to try to make it unique, but if you've attended other webinars of a similar topic, um, we we may be covering uh, similar ground. So so I apologize in advance. I'll uh, I'll do my best to to make it a little bit unique for you today. Um, <clears throat> so as we all know, or at least I hope we do. Um, the, the, there's a lot of value and benefit in the subscription billing model, but um, with sort of an upside in any business, there's always a downside. And uh, subscription businesses have more risk than maybe other traditional businesses business types have. Um, you know, the, oftentimes businesses will be sixth or seventh rebuild before they're even profitable. So uh, for that reason, um, there's it's important that they think about the interconnectivity of the different elements in their business. Um, I like to think about it. It's a pattern I see. It's not just in this context. It's kind of in life, to be honest with you. But it's sort of, you know, if you apply pressure in one area, then um, you know, oftentimes um, you, you'll create a problem in another area because because things don't typically exist in a vacuum. Um, <clears throat> so it's important that you think about how different things are interconnected. And um, I think the um, the easiest way to illustrate is to talk about the interconnectivity as the relationship between disputes and cancellations. Um, so if a business is focuses on is focused on reducing chargebacks and that's their only concern, um, one of the things, for example, that they might do is uh, make it very easy for people to cancel, um, and that will reduce chargebacks, but it may also increase churn. Um, so within a business, it's important that you think through all of these things and identify um, sort of where to draw the line for your business. So so where where to set your policies and practices so that you're optimized for the best result for your business, considering the um, the fallout in either direction from a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about today. Um, so how do you do that? 
the, um, the the first sort of piece of advice, and it's something that I talk about a lot. Um, now, Mallory and I have a deep background in marketing, I assume, Mallory. Um, so we're pretty familiar with conducting A-B tests, sort of common marketing speak. We do it all day long. But I realize that, um, that this might be somewhat unique to us. It's not something that other areas of the business, I think, are, are typically as familiar with. But the basic idea is that um, merchants should test different variables to see how uh, well they impact things like dispute rate and churn rate. Um, and just from a you know uh, abstract view, a, a win would be defined as uh, A/B testing, um, where you identify variables that are increasing churn or chargebacks that are not having as much of the positive impact as you might expect. So, oftentimes, and I'm going to give you some examples, but the basic idea is to really understand how these things are interconnected, not just you know run run simulations in your in your own mind, because a lot of times. The, um, the assumptions that businesses make um, are inaccurate. Um, <clears throat> now, another way to sort of frame this is, um, uh, you know, thinking about chargebacks along a spectrum. And when people talk about chargeback reasons, we, we, we typically talk about criminal fraud, friendly fraud, and merchant error. Um, but I think that when we talk about those, at least when we talk about, so let's throw away criminal fraud, but when we talk about um, merchant, uh, merchant error and friendly fraud, we're, we're kind of having the two extremes, right? So merchant error is sort of, you know, you forget to ship a product or, you know, in the extreme case, um, you, you, you you're, don't ship a product at all intentionally, right? So um, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the, some of my Facebook uh, news feed recently. There's just a lot of, a lot of you know unscrupulous merchants where a chargeback is completely the right thing to do because it really is a type of fraud. And then we think about friendly fraud. We think about the extreme case of somebody buying something, then they just want to get it for free, so they call their bank and then they pretend that they never received it, or they uh, they make up an excuse um, in order to try to try to get out of um, having to spend that money. Um, but the truth is that that most chargebacks um, fall somewhere along the spectrum and. Uh, um, in, in most cases, merchants for the same chargeback will have a valid prevention strategy that they can implement, as well as a legitimate case for representment if they wanted to uh, refute the chargeback. Um, one of the main examples I can think of this is to uh, illustrate the point of the extreme things um, merchants can do to limit cancellations. Um, so let, let me give you an example. So I know for my gym, for example, um, they make it really hard to cancel my membership. Um, I think I need to go into the gym, sign a piece of paper, and then I think the cancellation doesn't even happen until after the next billing. Um, now, I'm not interested in canceling my gym. I probably should be. But, I, you know, I know that when I do cancel, it's going to be I'm, I'm, it's going to be difficult. I'm probably not going to want to do that. Um, so I'm sure that as a result, my gym is dealing with some chargebacks. Um, and a case can be made that perhaps they should. I mean, that's it's a pretty extreme thing, uh, policy to have in place, but also it is true that um, uh, I did agree to those terms when I signed up. Now, um, the thing to tie this back to the A-B testing is um, <clears throat> that I believe that my gym assumes that they are limiting churn by by making it difficult or unlikely that I'm gonna go through the hassle of canceling it. And to be frank, they probably are. Um, but often that assumption has never been tested. Uh, so if their cancellation policy is so extreme that the churn is less than the impact on disputes, um, then they're making sort of a net mistake in their business. If that makes any sense, right? So if, if, they're, if they're preventing cancellations, but they're increasing chargebacks, 
uh, at a rate that costs their business more than um, then it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, and without testing their assumptions, they won't truly know, um, which sort of brings me to the next point that I want to talk about. And that's sort of understanding what the, the net chargeback costs are. Um, this slide was created for retail, but the principle still applies. And basically the idea is that you have, you have, you know, $99 transactions, you have 50 average chargebacks per month. Um, so really basic math, you have around $60,000 in lost revenue a year. Now, if, if you, if on that top level line, if you say, well, I have 50 cancellations a month at $99 a month, um, you know, that's, that's an even Steven trade, right? So if you can prevent 50 chargebacks by replacing it with 50 cancellations, that that's, that's an, that's an even calculus. Um, however, it's important, I think, that merchants really do sit down and calculate the cost of their chargebacks. Um, LexisNexis does a uh, study, it's like every year, every year and a half, um, it's called the True Cost of Fraud Study, and in that study they have a, what they call a fraud multiplier. And so they're talking about fraud, but I think I think it's reasonable for us to, to look at that fraud multiplier and just apply it generically to chargebacks and the cost of chargebacks. And generally it's anywhere from two and a half to three and a half times. So, so if you have $1,000 um, in transactions that are disputed, um, then you, what did I say? $1,000, let's say $1,000, then, then you're, that's two and a half to $3,000 in actual cost to the business. Um, so preventing chargebacks really should be one of the main things that a business focuses on because of all of those hidden costs that oftentimes don't make it onto um, spreadsheets that people aren't thinking about. Um, but are important and ultimately cost the business. Um, and then also, just as an aside, especially with recurring, and this is kind of different from case to case, but a lot of times what will happen is that somebody will contact their bank, they'll say, you know, I never received it, whatever, whatever the excuse is, and the bank in, in many instances will allow the consumer to dispute all of the transactions in the subscription. So if they were being billed weekly or if they were being um, charged monthly, um, you know, if the, if the, if the consumer convinces the bank that um, those charges are Ill illegitimate, a lot of times it won't just be the most recent, it'll be all the way back to the beginning of the relationship. And so th that's another example where cancellations would be far preferred to chargebacks. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this uh, uh, next slide is you know, an idea that I think everybody's probably, it's probably cliche at this point, but um, thinking outside the box, I think that um, a lot of the opportunity when we're talking about sort of mitigating that churn to chargeback friction, tension, however you want to think about it. Um, a lot of the solutions are really sort of reframing the, the conventional things that you're doing within your business. Um, and that's for recurring, that's for really any business, you know, th that's how you kind of, kind of get the competitive advantage. And I'm just going to give you one example, but there's really a lot of them. Um, and, and that's the example. And, and the way I like to illustrate is I like to say, okay, everybody just think about the amount of effort that you put into your email marketing campaigns, right? So the last email that you sent out to your list, like what it looked like, how much effort went into it. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's probably something like it was on the screen, right? It's got, you know, there's a lot of design. It's got, you know, it goes to copywriting. You come up with a, a clever tag. You've probably, you know, talked about what it is. You probably had a meeting on the campaign so that everybody's, everybody's involved. It's a lot of people put a lot of effort into it, but then post-sale, this is the uh, email that most businesses send out, right? It's just a really basic email. And so I think that that really illustrates the divide between the way that people think about these areas of their business. But really, especially in recurring business, every time you communicate to a customer, it's an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to put your best foot forward. And, um, 
what, what I encourage or what I've seen uh, businesses be successful at doing is instead of sending a, a quick email that says, hey, we've charged your credit card, they send an email and they just repurpose the some of the content that they're creating already for their um, uh, advertising campaigns, right? But they incorporate it into their billing notifications. So then instead of saying, hey, we've charged your credit card again, or we're gonna charge your credit card again, um, they, they send a notification that reminds the consumer of the value that they receive, tells them about new, um, you know, new features that are happening, um, and, um, you know, sort of creates a positive experience or in, in implants a positive, um, you know, brand image with the, with the customer. Um, and it's not a lot of additional work because most merchants are already creating this content. And so that's, this is just one example, but there's kind of a lot of them. Um, and then the last thing I'm going to give you, this is just sort of a tip, because I think a lot of people, whenever we do these webinars, they're always talking about, um, you know, how do we, you know, overturn these chargebacks? So I think this is probably the biggest secret. It's not really a secret, but it's the biggest piece of advice I can give. Um, and that is invest in your customer service, right? So your customer service, investing in your customer service department does two things. One, it gives you the best opportunity to prevent a dispute. So if somebody's unhappy and they want to cancel, allow them to cancel. If they're unhappy with their service, try to try to solve the reason that they're unhappy, um, and you know, tr you know, maybe offer them a discount. Maybe say that they can skip a month billing. But there's a lot of sort of create creative things that you can do there that that will mitigate some of the unhappiness that will either turn into a cancellation or a chargeback. So having a robust, effective customer service department is important. The second reason why it's important is because um, if what you're trying to do is dispute a chargeback, the information that you collect through your customer service department is gonna probably be one of some of the most valuable, compelling evidence that you can provide. So if you if you don't have a robust customer service department or they're not taking, you know, really explicit notes, um, if they're, you know, if you don't have email exchange where, you know, or if you've got a chat and you're not capturing IP and you haven't captured IP before. So there's a lot of things. If, if you're not doing all of those things, then you're not going to have the compelling evidence that uh, a business with a robust customer service department is going to have. Um, so so that's, you know, so that, so it's sort of a twofer. It's kind of a no brainer. Um, once your business gets to a certain size. So um, I encourage everyone to uh, to do that. All right, I'm going to hand it over to Mallory. I think I've sort of fumbled enough through this webinar. Uh, Mallory, do you want to take it from here? Here, let me make sure I share the keyboard and mouse with you. Okay, yep, I'd love to take over. Thanks, Jared. You should be good to go. All right, great. Um, so what I like to do usually is just kind of start out with some current industry trends. So what we've been hearing a lot and what we're looking at is that it's predicted that the SaaS market will increase to 145 billion by 2022, and that the global subscription e-commerce market is expected to reach 478 billion by 2025. So this is all in part because subscriptions, both digital and physical, provide businesses more ways to diversify their revenue, enhance their customer relationships, and extend their customer lifetime value. Um, so looking at why subscriptions, I mean, there's a lot of benefits for both merchants and consumers. Um, so from a merchant perspective, adding a subscription offering gives you a huge sense of financial stability. You don't need to worry about selling the customers on a one-off basis. You can, you have the ability to predict what recurring revenue will be. It allows you to better forecast and match demands. So you have higher and greater inventory control. 
especially for D2C and e-commerce businesses. Um, and it also gives you the ability to set clear goals and company targets based on your subscription metrics. So really just giving you that overall control that you, you don't have on those one-off purchase bases. Um, and with subscriptions, merchants also need to build stronger customer relationships and brand loyalty so that they can foster these relationships along their marketing to drive that increased demand. Um, some ways that you can do that, you can leverage the customer data to make sure that you're targeting them at the right time with the right products and services. And we find that this is very important switching to subscriptions. Um, it can be a totally different mindset for merchants. You really need to focus on building and fostering those customer relationships in the strong communities of brand advocates, which will totally provide that return on your investment in the long run. So when you look at the consumer benefits, you, feels like there's, um, you know, it's a harder barrier to entry to get those consumers. So why are they wanting to sign on for subscriptions? But there's actually a lot of reasons why consumers are drawn to subscriptions. So one of the main benefits for them is cost savings. There's a lot of different ways that you can provide consumers um, cost savings with subscriptions. You give them access to discounts and lower upfront costs. There's a huge convenience factor so when you automate your subscriptions for things like toothpaste or dog food, you don't have to worry about running out as long as it's a dependable merchant that should show up on time and you can count on those subscriptions and those products when you need them. Um, depending on your subscription offering, another draw for consumers can be access or early access to the latest goods or services. So in a lot of times that's not available to others and people really like that sense of VIP or early access, um, and it can be really successful for merchants. Um, and in our experience at Chargebee, another huge benefit for merchants is there's a requirement for consumers, they want the ability to customize their options. So whether it's pausing, skipping, having multiple payment options, consumers have always and will always want the, the ability to personalize. Um, and so I'll talk a lot more about that as we continue to go through. So looking at the first step with subscriptions, there are many ways that you can acquire new subscribers through traditional advertising and brand awareness. Obviously there's referrals, like here, freshly give 40, you get 40. Coupon codes, which are pretty straightforward. Early access, like I mentioned, everyone likes to feel like they're in the know um, and ahead of the trends. Loyalty programs for people that have been longtime customers, premium models, um, and subscribe and save. So when this is an example from Goop, which is one of our large customers. So if you order on subscription, you get a huge discount on all of their products. So all of these options have the goal of driving that initial subscription and then focusing on nurturing that long-term relationship. So as a business, if you focus on allowing customers flexibility and being upfront with self-serve options, they don't feel like they're signing their lives away with another new subscription. You make it a lot easier for them to pause, skip, feel in control. It really lowers their barrier to entry. And so you need to do that at the acquisition point with these consumers. So moving on to loyalty. So 60% of customers will tell friends and family about a brand they're loyal to. And 74% of consumers 
identify world, word of mouth as a key influencer in their purchasing decisions. So how do you build brand loyalty and ensure a long-term relationship? You really need to focus on that end-to-end -end customer experience. So over 50% of companies are redirecting investments towards customer experience innovations, signifying that it's a growing importance for the overall business strategy. Um, and what we're seeing is that a clever acquisition strategy can also be very lucrative and blends into that retention and customer lifetime value. When you're looking at acquiring new customers through the traditional methods, you must also keep in mind that personalization. Make sure that there's an element of delight, yet maintain the consistency of that offering. So you want to engage the customers by incorporating creativity in your marketing, reaching out to those customers through channels that they prefer. Um, and it requires that testing and iterating that Jared mentioned, really trying to figure out where those customers are and what they want to hear on different channels and delivering those tailored campaigns and by paying attention to those customer shifts and preferences over time will help you keep acquiring and engaging the customers that you have. So amazing customer service, another topic that Jared touched on, um, creates happy customers. So you need to have a seamless onboarding and initial experience for your customers so that they recognize your products and service potential from the start. And that's the first point where you can keep them hooked and wanting more and staying loyal and engaged. Um, you need to ensure that the customer's needs and pain points are addressed, whether that's through refunds, returns, and discounts. Um, and consumers, like we all know, want choices and they wanna feel like their experience is personalized to them and their needs. So throughout the acquisition, through to your end-to-end -end experience, you should ensure personalization through every marketing touch point that you have, all the way to your payment options. Acquiring new customers is six times more expensive than retention of existing customers. That's where you know, the value really comes in from subscriptions and why it's so important to focus on retention of these customers that you're spending so much time and effort and resources to acquire. Um, so jumping back to those self-serve options that I've been touching on about, um, not only do they create a lower barrier to entry, um, by being able to pause, skip, or zoom, but they help customers stay loyal by allowing them to feel like they are constantly in control of their subscription versus just the cut and dry options of opting in or opting out. They want to be able to defer for a month or change you know, their frequency of billing. Um, so those multiple payment options and payment plans. So offering the flexibility of payment methods helps ensure that you are able to capture those users you have brought to the point of purchase and avoid that cart abandonment. You also need to ensure that you have a frictionless user experience. So no matter where your buyers are, if they're mobile shopping, which is increasingly important, you need to have a seamless checkout experience for every device. Um, and diversifying your offerings to keep customers engaged. So you need to continue to diversify your offering, your products, whether it's upgrades, new features, new services, and over time, it'll help keep them engaged and wanting more. So an example would be with software offerings, instead of having to pay for a new version, customers can simply pay for the upgrade or choose a higher price plan, which also then increases your lifetime value. 
So a couple of key takeaways. Um, the longer a customer continues to purchase or subscribe to a company, the larger their lifetime value becomes, which is very important and really everyone's goal as a business owner or as part of a business. Um, be really proactive about your churn reduction. Ensure that you're scaling with your customers and providing new offerings that are relevant to their needs. Cultivate that loyalty through personalization, flexibility with payments and altering preferences, offering those discounts and incentives that I mentioned, and provide excellent customer service and focus on customer experience throughout the entire journey. Okay, great. That's, that's a great presentation. There was a lot of information there. Um, and just so everybody knows, at the end of this, I'm going to scroll all the way back up to the top. And so you'll have um, my email and you'll have Mallory's email. So if there's anything that she talked about, I'm, I haven't asked her if this is okay, but I'm going to encourage uh, the, you guys to, to reach out to Mallory if you have any additional questions. I'm sure that she'd, she'd be happy to elaborate on any of those individual points. Am I, am I right in saying that or did I just... Uh, <laughs> yep, that is more good. than okay with me. Okay, great. Okay, so now let's just go ahead and we'll we'll try to get through some of the questions that were submitted um, ahead of the webinar. Um, I wasn't sure about some of these, but I'm gonna do my best. Uh, I may need to punt on a couple. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the first one is uh, was asked by Mark, and the the gist of the question was how are payment networks changing their chargeback policy to be more accommodating to subscription providers? Um, so I, I would say here, it depends on what the definition of accommodating is. Um, you know, there are some reforms, um, at least on the chargeback side, that we're, we're pretty happy about that have happened in the last two or three years. The reforms that are um, specifically aimed at subscription providers largely have not been the type um, that I would consider sort of friendly towards subscription uh, the subscription economy, and 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 this is, you know, from from the bank and card network standpoint, you know, this is a uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to service their customer, right? So in as much as their revenue is derived from the merchant side, um, really their customers in the way that they they frame things um, are the consumers, right? They're the ones that use the Visa card or the Mastercard, um, and so really they're trying to protect the interests of their customers. And like it or not, there's some unscrupulous activity that just happens in the recurring billing space. Um, I mean, it's just sort of always been with us, uh, you know. So you may have a very a great subscription box company, uh, you know, and and so some of the you know, reforms and some of the additional regulations and, um, you know, issues that you're going to encounter may feel burdensome, but uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are warranted. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really have any sense of, you know, if there's going to be anything coming down the pike that's, uh, you know, going to be drastic but i think that the pressure is probably at least in the near term going to be similar to the to the reforms that have been happening i think um just giving an example something we talked about earlier today with with somebody in the office is that um you know visa is weighing whether or not they had a policy they sort of walked it back a little bit but the idea is that you know if if you're going to do recurring billing um that on that first bill um on the billing statement you had to uh indicate that 
um, it was part of a subscription just so that they knew, hey, there was going to be more bill. So when they see that first charge, they know that there's there may be additional charges um, coming. coming. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that they've actively been engaged with is, um, you know, working and creating ways that um, some of these chargebacks can be avoided. So there are tools now. Um, and this isn't specific to recurring billing, but there are tools that, that these networks have created that enable you, for example, when somebody contacts the uh, issuing bank and says, hey, I didn't authorize this charge, um, they can request additional information and in a lot of cases avoid what would ultimately turn into a chargeback. So, so there, there, you know, there, there's good news and bad news, but I think the stuff that's really specifically targeted at the recurring um, space are probably going to be more regulation and more sort of uh, hoops that you need to jump through. Um, and that's probably unfortunate from your perspective, but, you know, it's, I just, it's my take on it. Um, so this, uh, Gary asked, what are some unique examples of traditional businesses leveraging a subscription model? Uh, Mallory, I'm, I'm sure you have some great ideas there. Do you have a few? Yeah, um, I think most of the examples that I think of, of a traditional business, there's a lot of different SaaS um, and larger enterprises that are going to offering a you know, part of their business to having subscription model. When we're thinking of e-commerce and D2C, I think there's a lot of health and beauty brands as well. Goop, as I mentioned, um, Honest Company that has a whole slew of product offerings between the health and beauty bearing products. Um, but then you're able to also subscribe and save to a box for, you know, baby diapers and wipes and one-off products they have subscription box and lines for. Um, so there's a lot of really creative ways to look at your business and not think about how you have to holistically change your whole business model, but how can you diversify by adding a subscription offering to one piece of it um, that can be really helpful and successful for businesses. Yeah, those are great. Okay, Sharice uh, uh, said, I have a customer sign a contract that clearly states that if they wish to cancel, they must sign a cancellation form. But when I get a chargeback, I still usually lose, even though I have this, what is essentially a signed contract. So I'm gonna make some assumptions here. I'm, I'm going to assume that the reason that Sharice is using the cancellation policy that they are is because they're trying to create a little bit of uh, friction, a little bit of an obstacle for their customers um, that, are, that are trying to cancel. So generally, like this is kind of what I was talking about um, in, in my portion, I would encourage merchants to be cautious about those type of ideas because uh, the chargebacks are much more uh, costly it's probably not preventing as many cancellations as you think it is. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, the harder you make it to cancel, the, you know, the more difficult it is to have the uh, chargeback overturned. Now, that all that being said, uh, Sharice, you know, it sounds like, unless there's some other variable there that I'm not seeing, it sounds like Sharice could uh, have some of these chargebacks re reversed. She's not going to be able to win all of them because, you know, different issuing banks are going to have different policies, um, and the people that review these, they, to be honest with you, they don't really have time to look super deeply. And so my, I think what may be happening with Sharice is that, and something that we see is that somebody will have a big long contract, it'll include all kinds of stuff in it, right? And uh, <clears throat> this also works for terms of service, right? So people will say, well, it's in my terms of service that you, that we're going to bill you every whatever, but then the terms of service is, you know, something that people need to click on. It's like one statement in a larger contract. Um, and so both from the, you know, when somebody 
signs the contract or they check out through your your system um you know, make sure that they they see that and you can make the argument that yes they saw this they specifically agreed to this they didn't they didn't agree to 20 things and then this was one of them um, with recurring billing since it's so important that you have that permission to to charge their card and you'll be able to show that you have that permission you really have to to sort of isolate that so taking it from a deeper terms of service and putting it right there on the checkout page in very clear english really helps you be able to make that case now the second part is that you need to be able to communicate that to the so so your case needs to be built such that um, that information is quickly and easily understood right so for the same reason that the consumer wouldn't want to dig through you know 600 words or a thousand word terms and service to understand that they're going to be billed again the person at the um the person that's reviewing the the uh, rebuttal um they're not going to dig through a thousand words to find the little sentence that you put in there about what the cancellation policy is um, and so when you compile the cases, there's some things that you can do. So, so, so both make sure that, that you've isolated it from the interaction with the consumer. So they explicitly agree to that. It's not part of a larger thing, right? And then when you build the case, make sure that you isolate that and point that out separate and isn't just, you know, sort of muddled in there. So, you know, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take screen captures of the landing page and we'll, you know, circle whatever. I shouldn't be telling you this stuff. So don't tell anybody I told you, but, but that's kind of the way you want to do it. You want to uh, make sure that you tell a story because always keep in mind the, 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 the people that are doing this, they're overworked, right? So they don't invest in, you know, like pinball machines and it's not like a bunch of uh, couches. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the um, sort of necessary evil department, right? They, they just staff it. They try to get them to process as many chargeback requests as possible. Um, and so a lot of times they don't have time to really think and analyze stuff. So you want to tell a quick, concise story. Visuals help. Um, and then, and then to go back to the other thing, if, uh, Sharice, the point I made in my, um, um, <clears throat> presentation was, look, if you have, um, a communication with them, so if they, for example, like if they they email you and they say, Hey, um, <clears throat> you know, I'd like to cancel my membership or whatever. And then you email them back and say, okay, here's the form, just uh, sign this and then take a picture of it, you know, whatever, as frictionless as possible again. Um, but let's say that there's an interaction like that, then that interaction is also something that, that you can communicate, right? Especially if they say, didn't receive the service or couldn't cancel or I already canceled, you know, that's, that's, that's the type of thing um, that's gonna be valuable to you when you're trying to compile these cases. So it's not easy, you're not gonna win automatically. The, the, the people making the decision are on the side of the customer. Um, the customer's always right. Um, it is an uphill battle, that's why we have a business, so I, I understand. Um, your frustration there, but but you can get those overturned. Um, just I encourage you to think twice about that. Okay. Um, so uh, Sarah asked, what are some considerations for expanding into new markets? Um, Mallory, did you have some thoughts here? Uh, yeah. So expanding into new markets there's a lot that can go into whether it's regional or global expansion um i mean there's some obvious things clearly with different currencies or localized experience making sure that you're speaking the right language in the channels that you're using um and then also the acquisition so where are these people are they on different channels in different regions um making sure that you have those correct marketing experience, end-to-end -end experiences, like I mentioned, to be in front of those people as you globally expand. 
Um, and I know one of the biggest things for expansion for us and with our merchants and customers that they focus on is tax compliance. So making sure that you're compliant is really, really important, whether it is, you know, even just state to state expansion. Um, you really, there's a lot of complexities that go into the tax portion of it. So to make sure you don't get burned, you want to make sure that you are, whether leveraging a tool at Chargebee, we integrate with Avalara, who's really great. And they, they handle this for most of our customers, but um, knowing all the rules and having that figured out before you expand is going to be super important in our experience. Yeah, uh, th those are those are all great points, and I I think I'm just going to put a plug in here because um, we we are I think one of the only truly international chargeback management companies. So if if you are having your disputes managed by a third party, uh, make sure that they can handle uh, cross border because um, <clears throat> from from a dispute standpoint, I mean there's the the laws are very legal as you go from country to country or region to region, and um, you know if if you've got the chargebacks and everything sort of figured out here. Um, you, you you may be in an entirely different environment in a, in a different uh, country. So that's just an aside. Um, <clears throat> okay. So uh, this one, this will probably be the last one. I'm going to talk about this a little bit. Um, the uh, uh, Umbriella, I'm going to say is how you pronounce her name. Um, and she asked, w when we intercept chargebacks using verify ethics, et cetera, how are they still able to become chargebacks afterwards? Um, the answer is they shouldn't, but they do. Um, and it's for a variety of reasons, but basically it's because, uh, you know, people in systems are imperfect. Um, there's a lot of variables there. A lot of times, sometimes they can file a chargeback online and they speak to somebody and then, you know, the chargeback will go through a different channel. Um, you know, maybe the they just made a mistake at the acquiring bank. Um, there's, there's a lot of different reasons why that can happen. Um, remember, the acquiring bank is connecting through a, a third party that's connecting through, you know, down to. So there's there's just a lot. There's a lot in that chain. Um, so sometimes things can get, you know, with a keystroke, something can happen. Now, it doesn't happen very often, but it definitely does happen. Uh, if you are, if that is happening to you, I encourage you to reach out to us um, because one of the things that we do on behalf of our merchants is that we will um, <clears throat> just monitor for that. And then if that does happen, we will we will refund you any uh, fees that you paid for um, that alert. So that prevention um, gets refunded to you. So you still have the chargeback. There's really nothing we can do from, from that standpoint. Um, but uh, but you're at least not billed for the uh, the alert. So um, <clears throat> I hope that helps a little bit. I mean, it's it's um, it's sort of the the, the best solution I think um, because ever since I've been doing this, it does happen on you know one or two percent of the cases. So okay, all right. So I'm going to go back up uh, like I promised that I would and um, put our emails back up. I'll encourage you to reach out to. Uh, to Mallory or myself, if anything was unclear, or if you have a great dad joke, I'm a big fan of those. Um, and uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mallory, for for joining us. We we got this one together, and um, I think it was a good one. I, I appreciate uh, appreciate you being here with me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Bye, guys. <laughs>